I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, up yours, knucklehead. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. I was wondering what you're going to change all the quotes to. You're like, I need a quote page. And I'm like, I hopefully you have a find, replace, <laughs> copy them into Word. I, yeah, tonight, I'm not going to say the N-word. I'm also not going to say the N-word. I'm just going to say knucklehead. <laughs> yeah, it's a, K, it's a K word, technically. <laughs> the K word. Um, I don't know how we talk about today's movie where I can't say most of the best jokes in the movie out loud. But we'll get there. We'll get there. What, yeah, what, 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 I mean, it's just, yeah, it's the same problem we had when we covered the album Straight Outta Compton. <laughs> <laughs> we, we of course, um, used the word ruffian, scoundrel, uh, buddy. Joker. Joker. Well, you need to use the friendly version of the N-word as well. You fella? Like, yeah, fella, fella. <laughs> Crazy young fella named Ice Cube. <laughs> yeah, we're we're really, uh, really telling the line. What are we What are we talking about? Yeah, well, well first of all, we're, we, let's back up. Where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around the theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our second week of... Uh, they couldn't make Blazing Saddles today because most of the principal cast is dead. Not the director who's in this movie. Um, One of the only people that survived this. In a way that's like, is there he's like... He's 97! We talked about it! It's our Mel Brooks month. Um, and here's what's crazy. I, we at least need to mark the date. I, we did not know this. Today is literally the day that we're recording, not the day you listen to it, but the day we're recording this is the 50th anniversary of the release of Blazing Saddles, which you sent me. And I'm like, that really is weird. That is weird because that is not the reason we planned this month. No. Um, it is. It, it, it factored in the math nut. We almost never record on a Wednesday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie is a movie that like 50 years later. Still part of the cultural zeitgeist. There are memes about the movie. It's well, there's the meme. There's the memes, and then there's the the meme about the meme, which has a lot of funny jokes, like meta meme. The meta meme, like you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today because uh, you would be sued for copyright infringement or <laughs> all the other things. And we're gonna talk about uh, again. We're still kind of in tantric quickie, so we're gonna get in. We're gonna get out. And then we're going to go about our lives like nothing happened. Yeah. But get, um, in, get out. Picture you with your secretary. Uh, this isn't the producers. <laughs> <laughs> Although I suppose there's a, there's a sexy secretary in this one as well. So Yeah, Mel Brooks has a bit about he can't get the pen into the slot. And yeah. then uh, Hedley Lamar says, uh, picture yourself with your secretary. And then he gets it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this is... <laughs> I think this is the movie that when you think of Mel Brooks, you probably think of Blazing Saddles. Um, I'm sure there's a generation like ours that probably maybe their mind goes to Spaceballs first, which is also why we're covering it this month. But this was kind of his success. We talked about the producers, which is obviously became a success on Broadway. This is his third movie. He did a movie that probably you haven't seen. I actually haven't watched it yet called The Twelfth Chair, which is uh, came out in 1972, years after The Producers, was also not a success, really, and is a little, as I understand, a little more of a sincere movie. I, that and Life Stinks are his only two movies I haven't seen. I wouldn't mind watching them before this month is out. Um, but but uh, he, his first two movies, despite his success on television – we're not very successful. Blazing Saddles comes out 1974, February 7th, the day we're recording this, 1974. Budget of $2.6 million, almost doesn't get released like the producers because all the studio executives had tons of problems with it. He had a contract that had final cut, so he didn't have to listen to any of their stuff. And so they threatened to not release it. It gets released. And it makes $120 million at the box office, which in today's dollars, probably like $15 billion. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't pull up the inflation calculator. But 
I mean, it it's essentially makes its budget back 60 times over, which is insane. And that kind of sets the stage for Mel Brooks as the comedy voice of the 70s and 80s, where he gets a lot of freedom to make movies, some that were very successful, some that were not so successful. But from, a, I think, a commercial, and I think, I would say a critical perspective, even though this movie definitely has detractors when it came out, I think this is kind of his apex that set the stage for the rest of his career. Yeah. And, and, and on, really and quickly, sorry, and created a formula that he basically did from here on out. A quasi-parody um, where it's not a parody in a, the gag-a-minute sense that the Zucker Abrams movies would become where there's – but it is – it's playing fast and loose with anachronisms. It is telling jokes for the sake of jokes. It has characters. It has story beats. Um but it's really kind of influenced by a lot of early Woody Allen movies and kind of going, let's just take a genre and make jokes about it. Yeah, yeah. And <coughs> I think that this is the one that his legacy has most stuck with because, unfortunately, it became a, a, like a culture war talking point online. Um, Recently. Not, not, and not from people, but the, a notable thing about this. So the culture war talking point was not whether or not the movie is good. Um, the culture war touch point was not whether or not uh, the movie is uh, too offensive to be seen or whatever. Um, the culture war talking point was people arguing about whether or not cancel culture is a thing, right? Yeah. Um, and whether or not cancel culture still applies. And people that basically, ahistorically... A- claiming you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. And Mel Brooks' response to that common refrain um, is, I couldn't make Blazing Saddles back then. The movie was very controversial. Um, He got uh, praise from, uh, you know, his, like, liberal sort of, um, you know, college kid crowd, but also people were like, actually, sort of like Quentin Tarantino, like, actually should, like, uh... Should you be able to say the N-word this much in a movie? Should... And then, like, on the cultural conservative side, this is one thing that I didn't know until we started looking into this. People were mad that he was, like, disrespecting Western um, sort of uh, iconography, that he was being too silly with Western iconography and he was being somehow disrespectful, or that he was calling every, every you know... Um, sort of Western archetype, a racist, a small-minded moron. Um, And I think that that's, like, it's kind of interesting because, like, Mel Brooks is, like, when he was making the movie and writing it with a bunch of comedy comedy legends, but notably Richard Pryor, said, said, uh, hey, uh, this movie may go over very poorly. We all of our careers may be over after this. Uh, good luck. Um, he knew at the time what he was doing was transgressive. At yeah. the time, it was taken as a transgressive and controversial thing, and made a shit ton of money. What I humbly posit to you tonight: we don't have to get into the whole culture war thing. Is that um, controversial, device, divisive figures um, are able to put out comedy that is. Uh, gross and weird and then they get to just make as much more comedy uh, as they want whether that's transgressive for a good purpose like a progressive sort of of cause or if it's for a regressive hateful cause um look at what dave Chappelle is able to get away with on netflix and they just keep forking over millions of fucking dollars to him and use that as a reality and tell me why you don't think you can make Blazing Saddles today. The only thing I would say you can't make Blazing Saddles today is that they don't give money for comedies anymore. Not, well, they might give 2.9 or 2.6 million. Uh, yeah, let's actually start there because um, Anthony Jesselnik was actually – had a really good point about this. A, a very shock – he's a shock comic in a way that I think that a lot of leftists enjoy. He says a bunch of – you know, jokes that I think are funny first and they are told in a very wet way and they um, 
You know, uh, he has this thing talking about Matt Reif stand-up special, who I, I don't know. I know he was like a popular TikTok comic and is kind of blown up and he released a Netflix special. And I just know the controversial thing where he starts with like a um, a joke about hitting your girlfriend. And like not in a way that has a good punchline, but it's like meant to be shocking. And he has a point about that that was really good on his podcast. Um which is this idea that whether you're Dave Chappelle or Matt Reif or, or Adam Carolla or all these people that are like, I'm going to say offensive stuff and then people get mad about it. And it's like, look, no one can handle a joke. And he talks about how, like, that's not actually good comedy. Andy Kaufman, not Andy Kaufman, Andy Warhol had this had this comment about um, – or maybe it was Andy Kaufman. <laughs> Look it up, folks. <laughs> Do your own research. Uh, one and of the, Andy. One of the Andes. <laughs> um, not the mountain range. Not the not the mountain range. Had a comment that like comedy is getting away with it. It's about saying something that that is either transgressive or pushing your boundaries. But at the end of the day, the joke itself is funny. That no one leaves going "fuck you." That was terrible. And if your whole point is to set up a situation where you are making these jokes that cause that for the pure purpose of not getting a laugh but for getting a reaction then by that definition you are not doing good comedy because you're not getting away with it you are doing something that's meant for you to get ca- get caught so that you can become controversial or become a a right-wing comedian or complain about cancel culture but that good comedy fundamentally is getting away with it. And think about Blazing Saddles. Your point is 100% right. This w- this was almost not released because they couldn't make him change all the stuff they wanted to change about this movie that was offensive. And when it was released, it was funny enough and had a good enough message at the time that he got away with it. People like Roger Ebert gave this four out of four stars said it was probably one of the funniest things he'd ever seen in the movies. The audiences flocked to it. He got away with it and then got the capital con- to continue to make movies that for the most part, pe- no one is trying to cancel Blazing Saddles today. I mean, the the biggest reason to cancel it is something that no one ever talks about, which is the weird, like, homophobic shit near the end. <laughs> yes, it is. It is very of its era yeah. in how willing it is to be homophobic and not, I don't think, to serve a broader purpose where the characters of Blazing Saddles that say the N-word are all racist, basically. Yeah. And, like, it's to serve a thematic purpose. I think the homophobia is to serve a comedic purpose, which yeah. is... Uh, yeah, the key. And also, the, I'll, the say key right, about I'll say this, right now, there are jokes in this movie that are offensive that I think are funny. Yeah, I don't think they're worth the laugh, particularly to say them out loud. But like, there are jokes in this movie that are like definitely homophobic that like I laugh at. I won't name the specific one, but just it's because it's a zany Mel Brooks movie. Sometimes, yeah. like, just the inherent ridiculousness of a moment may just tickle you, and then like a second later, you're like. Well, that was pretty. That was pretty bigoted. Yeah, like. yeah, and I, I also think that like the the important thing here is that the way this movie's framed, and it's a movie from 1974. One thing we say all the time that just because something was socially acceptable in 1974, or 1964, or 1904, or 2024, doesn't actually mean that it's good or. Or okay. Like, yes, societal standards change, but they don't change into, like, more – it doesn't change things from being right or wrong in the context of the time. Like, they were right or wrong at that time as well. At that time, we decided we could be meaner to gay people than we we are now. Yeah. The, but the for point, better, for, the point, the, the for framing worse, of for worse. Yeah. <laughs> the, the framing of this movie, which is why, like you said, the, the, the racist and the white people saying the N word works for the most part comedically is that this movie is framed as all of the what literally all of the white people minus Gene Wilder's characters are idiots. They are every single one of them is framed as a moron who due to the 
injustice of racism in this country are in a position of power where the black people are not, even though they are clearly not just our star, but everyone is so much smarter, more caring, understand stuff. And like that contrast works, which is also one of the reasons that it was offensive. People obviously in 1974 were like, man, that's a lot of people saying the N word. It was, you know, there's a lot of stuff, racist jokes and stuff like that. But they also didn't like how dumb all the white people were portrayed as compared to all the black people. And like, that is the framing and the context that this movie takes. Does that mean that every, and as a result, the crux of this movie's comedy is about, not to sound too for a zany Mel Brooks comedy, is about the inherent injustice in in racism and how the concept of that a lot of like shitty racist people would say is it's a question of merit or meritocracy that literally white people, I mean, we still hear that from the Jordan Petersons and Andrew Sullivans and just shitty, shitty people that are like, oh, actually, it's genetically these people, you know, white people are just inherently genetically smarter or better and stuff like that. And this movie's framing is that they may have hold a position of power because of the inherent injustice in, in the United States, but they're not more deserving of it in any capacity because they are idiots. There's a scene in this movie that's very funny where after they all point uh, their guns at Bart, Bart fools them all just by pointing a gun at himself, talking in a in a scared uh, mammy voice and saying they're going to kill me and every single person in the town. And there's countless examples of how dumb they are, how easy they are to fool, whether they're the the people that eventually become nice-ish in the town or the people in a position of power. And I think, I think that framing works well for comedy, even as, as you said, Mel Brooks – so Mel, th- this was already a written script – Mel Brooks found the script. It was almost got made with someone else directing. Uh, it was, the script was very different. I don't know all the different specifics. But, um, uh, oh, weirdly, Alan Arkin almost directed and James Earl Jones was going to play the sheriff. Uh, but it was it was going to be called Tex-Ex. And Mel Bro- it, it ultimately didn't get made and Mel Brooks got the script. And he essentially put together, like you said, almost like in his old Get Smart days, a TV writer's room of some very famous comedians. And they took it and they really wrote around it, Richard Pryor being the primary one. His policy, he wrote a – he put something on – he put a big sign over the the, the room that where they were writing the script and collaborating and coming up with jokes and figuring out what this was. And he wrote it to say – Please do not write a polite script, is what he wrote. The idea of, I want this to be in the same way that, like, springtime for Hitler was my statement, as we said, about, like, how to ridicule fascism and Nazism as the way to bring it down. I want to ridicule the concept of racism, and I don't want to take any of the cultural sensitivity, especially by white people, into account as we write this script. And so yeah. that was the framing of it. And I think having watched it again for the first time in about 15 years, I can say it holds up really well on the on those. Uh, it's still very funny. And I think the point it's trying to get at 50 years later is still resonant. It still works from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like to note, like <clears throat> this movie came out six years after like the Hayes Code had been sort of formally dissolved. It was kind of ignored for a period of time, but like more like about six years after Hayes Code had been formally dissolved, it came out about 10 years after uh, a lot of the most notable murders of the civil rights era happened. Um, and uh, I don't think this is a movie that they could have gotten away with five years earlier, like to talk about like, you know, when you could and couldn't make this movie. Like, I think that there is a, um, there is an era of post-civil rights movies that I quite like, but a lot of them have this sort of, you have to be this perfect black person having a perfect conversation with your white peers in order to be half understood. And this is a movie that's just like a big fucking middle finger to the system that 
got made when it was made, still pissed people off for what is, I think, a fairly basic set of ideas. And it's a movie that I don't totally know why um, why it was selected as the cultural, um, you know, touch point that it needed, to, that it was. Um, because I don't know anybody that argues this movie isn't funny. I know people that argue, hey, I've actually seen this movie too many times or this movie has been stolen from too much. And so I don't laugh that much when it's on TV or like I've seen that movie a million times and I don't watch it anymore. That's something different. We are yeah. watching a movie in a context when, when it's 2020, 2024 and you can watch a movie 1,000 times on Netflix. This movie's currently on Netflix. 1,000 times on Netflix until every joke is, is sucked dry. And there's YouTube reels and YouTube best jokes about race. And, like, we're we're operating in a different timeline than the way people saw Blazing Saddles at, at that time. Um, also, Blazing Saddles was not made so it could be a, a straight-to-TV darling. Um, no. It's not, not the way the movie was made. Um, yeah, and probably shouldn't be because this was on Comedy Central a lot, and uh, it's heavily – I who knows what words they use instead, but – It's a real, like, what's the point kind of thing. <laughs> like, well, and so – yeah, and you're right because Mel Brooks said – and again, how you take this comment I think is open to context – but he did say in an interview in 2012 that he couldn't make – like if he was coming up with Blazing Saddles today, he couldn't make it because he thinks that the amount of N-words that white people say would not be allowed in a movie at the time. And he thinks that is critical to underlining the brutality and the idiocy and the racism of the white characters. Now, that is different whether you agree with that statement or not. That statement is different than you can't make Blazing Saddles today because there's too many snowflakes who will get offended. That is saying that um, how like the weird thing about this – and I, do you ever think about this like when you're watching 12 Years a Slave? It's like you have all these white characters saying the N-word or Django Unchained and they're all saying the N-word. I, I was going to say the same thing. Django yeah. Unchained in a very – like Django Unchained got away with it that year. Well, exactly. Um, and 12 Years a Slave did. And again, I get that, like, but I, I must be a little weird if you're a white actor to be like, no, you got to say the N-word like a bunch in this script. Now, I know if you're there's, Quentin Tarantino, if you're Quentin Tarantino, he writes scripts just so he can say the N-word as much as possible on film, clearly. But um, that's a joke. Uh, there's, a, there's a joke. There's a good moment in the Tales from the Hood making of when um, I forget who the white guy is, plays the, the, the white racist David Duke stand in. Um, but they actually, oh, it's Corbin Burnson. Corbin Burnson. We, ta we talked about, about this on the episode. Behind the scenes, he's like, I, every time I would say the N-word in a scene, people, the entire cast, sorry, the entire crew, um, was mostly black people, and most of the cast was black people, and so whoever was on set would start giggling, and he's like, I really need you guys to help me focus. <laughs> like, this is... This isn't a funny joke to me. This is actually something that takes a piece of me out yeah. of me. It's very uncomfortable for me to be here. And he, he's like, I got mad one day on set because people were like not taking it seriously. They were just like, oh, my God, <laughs> like Rusty made this <laughs> made Corbin Burns and say the N word. Like and, and it, it is yeah. it is funny. It's also people are breaking the tension. Right. I'm not blaming anyone in this situation. But Corbin Burns talks about how uncomfortable it is to be having to play the racist. But if you signed on to make Tales from the Hood, you probably are at least open to the idea of civil rights, let alone an anti-racist. So Yeah, I, I well, that. I mean, that was kind of the, whether you agree with it, the Django and the uh, Django and 12 Years a Slave are, t are talking in different ways about, like, the brutality of slavery. One is a, is a 70s era exploitation revenge thriller, and one is a, you know, historical drama. Um where Blazing Saddles is making jokes, and that that has its same power too. So I I would disagree a little bit with Mel Brooks's statement, but it's worth noting that he said it too. I just think the context is completely different than snowflakes are going to get offended, and like who who's the Cleveland uh, Cleveland Little that's going to <laughs> come and say it as a as a joke as much as that kind of stuff? And I yeah, you know for um, sure you know you know who uh, you know who he really wanted to be in the movie. 
Because he oh. does get a lot of Western stars in the this movie, but he really I wanted. Mean, I do to... know he. I do know he discussed with Richard Pryor having Richard Pryor be, if not Cleavon Little's role, then one of the main. No, he was. So he was supposed to be, but at the time he had been arrested for drugs so many times, the studio said he was uninsurable as a leading man. Yeah, but he really he actually sent the script to John Wayne and really wanted John Wayne in it. Oh yes, and, he, Sorry, and John for Cleavon Little, and I was like, oh. and John Wayne who was. <laughs> Uh, who was a racist in real life. Uh, yes. Just a terrible piece of shit. Um, uh, but he said that he didn't think that the movie's blue language would jive with his family-friendly image, but um, he would be the first person to buy a ticket because he liked the script so much. Which uh, is so funny because nothing in this movie is more offensive than John Wayne making the Green Berets the only <laughs> pro-Vietnam movie made during Vietnam. <laughs> Nothing uh, is more offensive than that, actually. Yeah, I actually think that maybe it's uh, that's the worst criticism of the movie of all time is that John Wayne liked the script. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. are we do- are we doing something wrong if John Wayne supports this? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually, they started shooting with someone else in the Gene Wilder yeah um, role and um, uh, Gig Young. Um, who was a Western actor. He was trying to sort of um, take advantage of, um, hey, let's like use someone's gravitas as as an actor and and sort of undermine it. And, you know, Cleavon Little will be the, sil- the silly guy and then we'll have a, a more serious actor playing um, his counterpart. And apparently Gig Young was um, kind of a bad alcoholic and got fired from the movie. Yeah, for being and, too drunk on set, yeah. Yeah, and um, which is uh, uh, Mel Brooks. I watched a bunch of Mel Brooks stuff, and one of them was like a stand-up kind of thing he did, where he sings some songs from the movie interstitially. Um, and uh, it's cute. It's on HBO. It's like an hour, yeah. whatever. Um and he uh, he said, he's like, oh, I wanted to, you know, maybe I was a little bit too cinema verite. Maybe I was a little too realistic. I, I needed an alcoholic for a role, so I hired an alcoholic. And he claims he puked on set. Whether or not that was a bit or not is, is uh, up to interpretation. But the point is, G- Gene Wilder got pulled into this movie. And Gene Wilder, who already had a, a burgeoning relationship with um, Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder was like, yeah, but I need you to help me with next week's movie. Um, I'm working on sort of. He didn't say next week's movie. There was a bigger separation. There was a bigger time period. Movies take. I don't know if you know this. Movies take longer to shoot than a week. (laughs) I'm also speaking. I don't. I I didn't have a microphone in the room. I'm also speaking. You know, sort of, sort of paraphrasing. Um, He uh, he said, uh, yeah, but I want you to help me crack Young Frankenstein. Uh, Similar to Blazing Saddles, a movie that started development before Mel Brooks came along, and then Mel Brooks came came along and said, actually. That's not what this is. And he reworked the movie and we'll talk about all that next week. Yeah. But um, Gene Wilder came in and I, I've seen this movie not as much as Spaceballs or Young Frankenstein or Robin Hood. Um, but I, I've seen this movie, I don't know, a half dozen times in my life, which for a Mel Brooks movie is actually pretty low. I've always been like funny, funny, funny movie. The screen chemistry between Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little is like way more legitimate than I remember it being. It's way sweeter and kinder, and they have like a real friendship that you can like feel through the screen in a way yep. that like it's it's just movie star charisma hitting movie star charisma. They're they're both just so charming with one another. There's also a couple shots in the movie of Cleavon Little breaking that they just leave in as part of the story, and it really like helps you make these like these two guys because they don't spend they like play chess and they fuck around, but like. Once they're friends, the movie's just like it's not asking questions why why Gene Wilder wants to help Cleavon Little. Like yeah. five minutes later in the movie, he's like, Well, obviously I'm gonna give you all the advice, I'm gonna help you out, I'm gonna go everywhere with you, I'm gonna draw my guns for you. Like you just get it because they're so good together. Yeah, I do think uh, I agree with that. I think the chemistry between them is great. It is interesting though, like and I don't mean this as an insult to Gene Wilder, I think he's he's doing a good job of what the script is asking him to do, um, especially knowing that he wasn't initially cast in it. 
He's not very funny in this movie, especially when you saw like how funny he is in the producers and how funny he'll be in Young Frankenstein next week. Like, I mean, it's supposed to be. It's a very subdued role. He's sleepy and lazy. He plays it very well. He's in that Gene Wilder mode. Gene Wilder has like I'm hyper and I'm manic, and then he has like I'm bored by everything, and he's in he's in I'm bored by everything mode here. Um, but it's interesting, like rewatching that. I was struck by how. People like um, how like unfunny he is compared to the other people. And that doesn't mean he's but not I think, funny. I think it's because I think it's because he doesn't. I agree with you, but I think that it's because both he, the script, and himself is not trying to steal the thunder from Cleveland Little. I think it's actually very important to the themes in the movie that that um, Gene Wilder does not um, uh, outshine Cleveland Little. I think that's that's amazingly important in the movie and while we're agreeing i know this 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 pairing never would have happened but i'm really happy it's gene wilder and cleavon little because i've seen some gene wilder and richard Pryor movies and for two people that make me so happy and have given me so many laughs uh when they're together some something really putrid comes out i don't know what it is um it's uh, all of those movies that i've seen are just so bad richard Pryor in in as a screen actor just could never translate his his um I like um world shaking, world changing stand up. Like a guy so funny that like yeah. you forget you're watching stand up. Like he could we never just talked about translate this with Chris that Rock. To, to film. What'd you say? We just talked about that with Chris Rock too. It's like a very similar <laughs> Thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Chris Rock has never has never been on Richard Pryor's level, but you're completely right. Like Chris Rock's charms on on stage charms, and I'm not saying they don't exist; they absolutely exist. His on stage charms, he can never really push them over into his yeah. on screen. You know who else? You know who else has never really been able to do that? Uh, Bill Maher, and also his stand up's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I would argue Bill Maher perfectly translated. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. His his, uh, his, his tepid his, his, his tepid terrible stand up is right on par with his terrible talk show and movie career. Um, <laughs> his his um loaf of bread that you realized you forgot to put salt in uh, stand up. Uh, really? Yeah. All all of those. I think we've talked about in the show. All those Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder movies are fucking so unfunny like is silver streak even a comedy i don't remember anything attempting to be funny in that movie i think stir crazy has one funny joke uh and see no evil hear no evil is like the laziest comedy of all time like those movies are terrible the actually my favorite gene wilder movie because i think the the chemistry between him and john candy is really good is uh brewster's millions um i, I haven't seen that one that. actually I have, a, I have a good time with that movie it, it's it's high concept 80s like you're gonna get a joke every five minutes but richard plot uh the plot of that movie is richard Pryor basically getting um I think he gets like thirty million dollars, but he has to spend it in like a week. And if he if he does, he'll inherit, and he would spend it within a week without inheriting any assets. And if he does, he'll get his the full inheritance of three hundred million dollars. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's like it it has a lot of antics as opposed to funniness. But John Candy and Richard Pryor are very very cute in that movie together. So. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. I it is uh one of those movies that has been somewhat tainted by um watching 15 minutes of a, on a washed out TV in the middle yeah. of the summer on Comedy Central with all the all, all of the curse words edited out. <laughs> so, one of the funniest jokes in this movie is also one that I did not get until this time watching it. So It happens every time we watch one of these movies where I'm like, oh, I, I get that reference now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. The Hedy Lamar, Headley Lamar thing. Like, obviously, I, I understood that he kept saying Headley and everyone said Hedy. But I never like I didn't know who Hedy Lamar was when I watched this movie. Um, there's a and I didn't know what happened after this movie came out. So there's a joke in the, the joke of the movie is that his name is Headley Lamar, Hedy Lamar. Famous 20s, 30s, 40s screen star. His name is Headley Lamar. And every time any, everyone gets it wrong. But there's a very specific joke that I definitely didn't get. Where, where um, Mel Brooks comments that it's okay if you say Hedy Lamar. It's 1874. You can sue her. Which is a <laughs> yeah. very, very funny joke. 
The funniest part about that is Hedy Lamar did sue uh, the production and the studio for mocking uh, her name and, like, disparaging her name. And Mel Brooks settled. He, he, he asked the studio to settle as opposed to, like, they probably would have won in court and stuff like that. But he said, we're happy to settle. It was meant as an honor. We meant absolutely no offense to it. And if you feel like in some way that you were dishonored by us using the name as a joke, we'll happily pay for that you know, perceived damage or whatever. He didn't say it like that, but that was his thing. He convinced the studio, like, look, like, don't, if she was upset by this, don't bury this woman. Yeah. Just give her money. Like, yes, it's parody. Yes. She's a public figure. Yes. It's free speech. But like, if she was offended by it, just give her some money. But God, that is a funny joke. It's 1874. You can sue her. It's so good. There are, like, I do quite like, so the, famously the ending, ending of this movie is that there's a fight so raucous that it spills out over the Western set and there's a big sky shot of the studio and it spills out into the studio lot and onto the streets of Hollywood and Man's Chinese Theater plays a big role in the finale. Like, it's a movie that, um, it's a movie that, like, has this metatextual twist for the third act that's very funny. Yeah, but some people said was incredibly lazy. Some people hate. So some of the critics were like, "Did you not know how to end it?" But I think it's fucking hilarious as shit. It has so many fun that do this. That do this sort of like we just completely broke the movie because, like, honestly, it's a pretty straight kind of. It's a pretty straight western through as straight as a western comedy can be. There's a few jokes that play with like not just idiosyncrasies, but like. There's a few jokes the, the Hedy Lamar and anachronism thing where you're like, okay, well, like it's winking at the audience, or or Hedy Lamar, um, like thinking his plans out loud, and then he he he's staring at the camera. He's like, wait, why am I telling you all this? Like, yeah, there's little jokes, and at the end, it's just an explosion of that, all of that kind of energy finally coming out, and then there's one more like actual because it's a it's a real movie. There's one more actual ending at the end. All they did was they made the fight crazier. Like, as soon as the fight is over and, and, and Headley is dead, um, they go back to the Western set. Well, hold on. No, but fu- I think funny, they go and watch how their movie ends. Yeah. And then you cut back and you're seeing the ending of the movie. I also like I, I have so much more appreciation for this is such a minor bit, but like. I love that they ride off into the sunset and then get in a car and drive away. <laughs> like, yes. for some reason that – I don't know. That joke is just not one of the jokes that sit with me. Maybe because there is so many, like, obviously hilarious jokes. Like, um, um, like punching the horse or something like that, like, is so goddamn funny. But I think there's something charming about, like, going back to your metatextual explosion and being like, well, we're just going to – we're not going to yeah. ride all the way off to the sunset. We can just get in a car. <laughs> I think that that, yeah, that joke kind of gets stepped on a little bit by how raucous the third, yeah. the third act climax is and, and that they're just sort of like doing the thing again. It gets stepped on a little bit, but I think it's a sweet kind of ending. It's kind of, um, it's the movie is breaking through in multiple ways, but the movie is breaking through um, sort of its conventions to like wake you up a little bit and i think that like it helps some like the race themes come together in the end where like um at the end of the day they're like it's almost at the end of the the way i read the ending so at the end of the day they're like hey this is just a movie it's just just we're you know we're having some fun here's a story about how a town learned to if not respect their black sheriff, uh, you know, respect uh, their their black peers, at least they um, learned to begrudgingly find value in them <laughs> as, yeah. as people. Like, um, and, and, and to me, I read that as like, um, the movie is just like helping wake you up a little bit. It doesn't let you get sucked into this sort of fa- Western fantasy that was always a fantasy. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that like Mel Brooks is making this movie... It, He's, he's someone who's he said, I like 
I like westerns, but like I wanted to make a Jewish guy's western about the black experience in America. And yeah. I think that like when you think about the fact that like his western hero ended up being Gene Wilder, like one of the most beloved Jewish entertainers of this era, um and how Mel Brooks just constantly inserts himself in the movie as sort of like a fucking doofus. Like, I don't know anything. I'm just a clown. I'm just going to do something silly. I'm not like, he doesn't come in and like preach to the audience the way like Woody Allen would a few years later where he like turns the camera and talks shit at at, at the camera because like he's still getting out of his sort of stand-up days, right? Yeah. And he he eventually just found characters. He just eventually found beautiful people to say what Woody Allen wanted to say. So it's a little different. Um, I think that Mel Brooks is like sort of like bravery in in the final act is anything but lazy. I think that it's him trying to wake you up and be like, this is just a fun little fantasy we're having. Anyways, I hope you can take something out of this. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the other funniest things about this movie, and you probably saw this when you went through Mel Brooks's filmography that I'm like, yeah, he hasn't worked on a movie in a long time. And then I was like, wait. He wrote a 2022 animated movie called Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank. Like, what the fuck is Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank? And why is he the writer of it? Like, is this something I need to check out? And it turns out that they wrote an homage to Blazing Saddles for a kid's animated movie that was originally titled Blazing Samurai, which, P.S., better name than Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank. But it was so close to his script that they ended up giving him an executive producer and a writing credit. And then he ended up voicing one of the characters as a be like, hey, don't sue us. You get a writing. It's kind of like the Paramore thing with Olivia Rodrigo. <laughs> They're like, you guys ever, you guys wrote this song with us, basically, because we, we took a lot from it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, I, I, I read that and I was like, you know what? I bet Eugene Wilder, like, got a note from his lawyers and then he talked to like a nice young director. I don't think Gene, I don't know how to tell you this, but Gene was oh, 100% I think Mel, dead in Mel, Mel Brooks um, probably got a note from his lawyer. He probably said, hey, do you want to come down to a recording studio like 15 minutes from your house? Uh, you want to throw some lines in for this silly movie and we'll cut you a check? And then he was like, yeah, I've got like a grandson that's going to college or something. <laughs> you know, like he's got, he probably had like I, I I do like when old people are just like, you know what? I don't need to sue anybody. Just give me some cash and let's move on. I I I we'll talk about this I think later this year, hopefully, but um there's a funny story that I just think about all the time that like um John Carpenter sued Luc Besson and I think Galmo for making lockout, space jail. Oh. That's what people called it. Um and he was and, and then when asked why he sued him, but not like other people that kind of riffed on the formula. And there's a million Italian ripoffs of Escape from New York. And there's. Um, yeah, but who wants Italian money? <laughs> a lira. Um, it's like a joke. And, and obviously, um, Metal Gear Solid is the big example people come to. Like, why didn't you so, sue Konami and Hideo Kojima? Um, they literally car- called a character like uh, like Iroquois Pliskin. Oh, yeah. actually, my name's Snake. Like they literally did this um, and made a bunch of games with this character. And John Carpenter basically was like, he more or less paraphrasing. He's like, well, I thought Luke Besson was a dick, and he didn't actually like admit it. And then Hideo Kojima like called me and told me what he, like what was going on, and we talked about it. And I got to play the game, and the game was really good. Like, <laughs> I, I get that vibe out of like some of my favorite creators, where it's like, you know, like just don't be an asshole about it. <laughs> you can't be an asshole and not pay me. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, pick one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. uh, but I, I think it's I think it's sweet when people don't uh, fucking sue each other's asses off. They just figure out a solution. Wasn't that Tom Petty's thing when he sued Sam Smith? He's like, "Fuck that guy." He said the song had nothing to do with it, so I sued him. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So um, I do want to talk about because I think we're gonna. Oh, hold on. I want to say hold on, hold on. I know you got something to do. I want three reasons. I think this movie is like. What's the joke? The jokes may or may not land for you. Okay. 
Before you do that, I want to say that my favorite racist joke that, like, is meanly racist and is lands really well to this day. I love the part when the town is um, is uh, deciding, like, okay, we'll let all the black people get plots of land and live with us in this town if we stop the bad guys. And then they make a terrible racist joke about, but no, and I'm not even going to say the word basically they're saying Chinese people but then someone goes and definitely not the Irish and everyone <laughs> agrees with that which is a, a joke about a race that holds up because you can make fun of the Irish but yeah uh, again that is a that is a good uh, it is a good reminder of how much race is a construct that Irish people myself included were not considered white people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my as as well. My my people were not considered white people. If you're uh, an Italian, Italian American person, yeah. um, you were considered a, a subspecies. Um, if you think of I, if you think of white and, people, and Irish people just, come to mind. <laughs> and it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. Yeah, exactly. When you think of a white person, you think of uh, the various outreach programs that uh, Irish people have done, which is have sex with every every race on the planet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm proud of my people for that. Um, for for really getting out there. Um, the fact that there's anyone that's 100% English is just kind of disgusting to me. Um, but uh, what I'll say there is that it is nice that we have this nice parked off little thing that we can like make little jokes about, about like Irish and Italian people and how they had a rough time for some time, I guess. And now it's like. A historical bit of like fun movie trivia, like yeah. pop up video. Like, did you know that people didn't like Irish people for a while? Yeah. <laughs> like, did you did you know that? Uh, because yeah. like we're still living with the, the the effects of racism against people of color, right? We're still living yeah. with that. They are still living with that. Um, but like nowadays, like, is there any remnant remaining of Irish racism? No. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I don't think so. There's, a, I, I would argue that like there's some anti-Italian stuff still lingering around. It's trace elements. It's trace elements. But like, yeah, it's it's the anti-Italian defamation league who was like, we don't like the Sopranos. They're like, you guys still have a league? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing? Yeah. Um, but like, uh, you know, there's still, there's still some like, uh, words you can say to an Italian person that would be considered fighting words. Whereas I don't think Irish people even have that anymore. Um, but probably a potato based uh, joke, if anything, it is fun that we still have that. I still get to make little jokes about my people being garbage. (laughs) I mostly make jokes about, uh, Boston Irish. They're... They're, you know, not so great. (laughs) (laughs) They did not not learn the lessons of being. They they had a, like, if you can't beat the racist, join them attitude. (laughs) (laughs) I have a real don't go back to Ireland approach to Boston. (laughs) Boston Irish. I'm like, hey, stop it. It seems like a nice country. Leave them alone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And uh, don't worry. There's parts of the year where Chicago Irish people are also the worst, so you know we've we've got that covered as well. Yeah. Um, All right, let's go through your three things because but yeah, I okay. So I got some I, so like some jokes that are kind of lost. Some jokes kind of get lost on people for multiple reasons. One I kind of talked about, though, like the repetition thing. Um, like to offensiveness and how groups are targeted because like I think like this is a movie that specifically the jokes that they make about um the jokes that they make uh that use the n-word or have black people involved in like a constituent part of the joke i think more or less aged pretty well Mm -hmm. um except for a couple because the point is that the joke is not a butt on them right as we discussed um and i think that like a third reason that some jokes kind of get lost is that I don't know if anybody under 60, <clears throat> anybody or 50, let's say, 
has not more familiar with like new westerns and western parodies and neo westerns and cowboy bebop kind of shit is not more familiar with that than they are with like gunsmoke mm-hmm. like i think that like the the original kind of like cowboy movies like Sure, some people now have seen, under the age of 50, have seen some John Ford westerns, because they're good. But, like, the fact that, like, westerns dominated TV and screen for, like, decades, and it, like, was part of the birth of cinema, Mm -hmm. like, um, and that, like... (laughs) There were movies about train robberies and then actual, like, cowboys were like, I'm going to rob me a train. Like, that's <laughs> fucking weird, right? That era, I think, of of Westerns is, like, kind of culturally irrelevant, even though I like a lot of those movies. And, like, the new, mean, post-70s, good, bad, and the ugly, and the parody movies like Blazing Saddles and, and all of that, and the neo-Westerns, like, you know, um... Fucking uh, the Wolverine movie, Logan, and Cowboy Bebop, and stuff that sort of, like, uh, uh, works in the conventions, but is absolutely not, like, a traditional Western. We're way more familiar with that kind of stuff. Yeah. We're way more familiar with, like, the children of Leone than we are with the children of of John Ford, right? Yeah. And I think that that's something that some of the jokes in this movie may be lost, is because, like... The conventions that we're we think about as a Western, like some of the shit in this movie is really hokey, but it's like literally one to one with how Westerns were for two or more decades. Well, yeah, I mean, even the opening song with like the Blazing Saddles, the the guy they hired to sing it sang songs like that that would open Western movies. So Brooks literally advertised in the trade papers for a Frankie Lane type singer to sing these songs for Westerns. And Frankie Lane was like, well, I can do that. I sing song for Westerns. I, no one's asked me in a little bit. And Mel and Brooks, Mel Brooks said, had a song for him along with his co-writer. Yeah. And he, uh, Mel Brooks said, Frankie sang, it, sang his heart out and we didn't have the heart to tell him it was a spoof. He never heard the whip craps. We put those in later. We got so lucky with his serious interpretation of the song. The, these were the type – he did not know he was doing a parody. That's how close this was to those kind of like hokey John Wayne westerns. Not even the John Ford stuff, but like the people that were trying to mimic John Ford by doing these like uh, kind of like um, the shit that how like – the West was won. Yeah, I think the I think the best version of that that kind of exemplifies that if you don't know what we're talking about is it's that joke in Back to the Future Three that's really good, which is like he's in 1955 and so Doc Brown dresses him up like someone who's from a Western 1955, which looks like a gunsmoke person with frilly the the whatever the suede frills are. And Michael J. Fox is like, are you sure people wear this? I've never seen Clint Eastwood look anything like this. And yes. he's like, Clint who? You know, that's <laughs> that's the joke because uh, Westerns did take a turn and this kind of hokey like the the bad guys were all coming down. Like, you know, that's what he's making fun of. Yeah, no. And I, I think that like I think that like some of the hokey stiffness of this may detract some of the jokes like. The joke that I'm thinking of specifically is the idea of all the bad guys sitting around a campfire eating beans, and of course they're farting. Like, oh yeah, it was such a Western archetype that like guys sitting around eating cans of beans. Like they were, they would advertise like leather belts to be like, "You're a tough Western guy. I know you're just going to your job at you know Sears and Roebuck, but like." Yeah. <laughs> like you're a tough western guy and it shows like a picture of a guy eating a hot can of beans and like them having like the farts and stuff it's like if, if it, you just take that as a fart joke it's not funny but the reason the joke is a little bit like like the, the reason the joke has any basis is that like you see the scene in every western in that era and it must have been very like, stinky yes yeah, yeah um and then that was one of the things the studio just, wanted to insane. cut too the stinky farts yeah they're like this is not okay. <laughs> Isn't it weird? So, um, like, you used to not be able to talk about farts on TV. Yeah. And, like, you used to not be able to talk about, like, in general, like, anything that comes out of your butt. Um, yeah. And now I'm like, 
I feel like every cartoon I grew up with just has a fart joke once or twice an episode. That's why people like that's why eight seconds. A hundred percent. That's why people don't like Looney Tunes. They're like, there's no farts in any of these. (laughs) No farts. No farts. What's what's the big idea? No farts. But again, talking about how trends change, you don't have kids' cartoons anymore where the characters blowing up with explosives or getting shot in the face are like the big punchlines, but they won't allow farts. So like, I love Looney Tunes too, but like, it's okay that we've said, hey, farts okay. Showing kids to point a fucking revolver at your rabbit's head is not so okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get out of that. Uh, I did not expect this to be as funny as it was because this is the part that made me laugh as a kid. And I thought like, Sort of like with Spaceballs, the joke that made me laugh as a kid is sometimes the joke that makes me laugh as an adult, but, like, it's actually kind of flipped. Um, The joke, all the jokes about Mongo generally make me laugh a lot, but um, there's a joke where there's this guy in town who's just always talking about science and big ideas and (laughs) philosophy, and he he doesn't get to be, make a joke the entire movie, I don't think. He just gets to be the butt of jokes, and... (laughs) And they're all sitting in the bar and Mongo's about to charge in. And he's like, well, just uh, on the other side of the pond, uh, Louis Pasteur is figuring out a way to... And then he goes... And then the guy with him, uh, Jeff Lebowski, Jeff Jeff Lebowski, um, he goes, never mind that shit, here comes Mongo! (laughs) That's a good joke. We'll eliminate hand, foot, and mouth disease. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the fact that not only do they know what mongo is but that's that joke and then it cuts away from that scene and then when they come back later there's just chaos it just makes me love that bit so much i loved it so much as a kid because it's i mean it's someone says never mind that shit he's basically saying shut the fuck up there's mongo but like um that line reading is just so perfect i i also like if we're talking about gene wilder whether or not he's funny another gene wilder joke is i love when he's like um, Cleavon Little goes, goes to go strap on his belt to fight Mongo, and Gene Wilder is like, <laughs> Gene Wilder's like, oh, don't bring those. And he's like, why? And he's like, shooting them will just make him more mad. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, okay, while we're there, also one more Gene Wilder joke unrelated to Mongo. Um, when he's introduced, he's like hanging from the um, bed frame. He's like stuck. He's like so drunk that he slept upside down, whatever. Um, Gene Wilder has a couple line readings in this that very much remind me of the producers, where he's just so quiet and gentle, but it's quietly the funniest thing in the movie, which is, um, <laughs> uh, Cleveland Little's like, do you want some help? And Gene Wilder goes, oh, all I can get. <laughs> it kills me every time. It's so gentle and sweet. It's like a Jenny Slate line reading. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess my life sucks. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of yeah. Gunsmoke and I am under 50. I don't yeah, think I've ever seen like epi- uh, episodes of it. Uh, uh, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Bonanza either, which is, uh, what the longest running TV show before Simpsons broke it like 30 years ago. <laughs> Jesus. There are 635 episodes of Gunsmoke. Oh, any episodes of Bonanza? 431. Oh, so it was Gunsmoke. Did Simpsons beat Gunsmoke? Yeah, I guess so. How many episodes Simpsons? 760. So, so I guess recently, like in the last five years. Yeah, Simpsons uh, would just clear obstacles that were like, it was like the most episodes for an animated TV show, the most episodes, the most episodes for a primetime TV show. And then eventually it was like, it's just the most episodes that's not a a, a soap opera, right? Like, or like 60 minutes, maybe 60 minutes has it beat or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah. like you have to take like, it needs to be a scripted television program that's not a daytime soap. Six hundred and thirty five episodes of Gunsmoke. What at a time when TV was like every episode's the same. Like that is they could have just started in those later seasons putting the first like there's no videotape. Just start rerunning them and calling with a new title. Like you don't need that many episodes of Gunsmoke, guys. 
Yeah, you know, just do the thing. Every episode's just... 55 minutes long because there's one sponsor. <laughs> just flip uh, just flip the tape. Everybody used to be running to the right, and now they're running to the left, you know? How would you ever know? Uh, although Who could be bothered to know? Yeah. Um, all those old dads who are like, I gotta watch every... Has that ever been released on DVD in a complete collection? Like, I, I don't know, but... It is one of the seven shows that I will go over to my uh, my in-law's house, and my father-in-law is almost always watching. Here's here's what's fucking crazy. I, I don't know. This isn't our Gunsmoke episode. Now we might need to watch Gunsmoke, but it ran before that as a radio serial from 1952 to 1961, and then three years into that, they're like, let's make it a TV show. Let's get some moving pictures in on this one. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't that many options. Um, I think there are more episodes of Gunsmoke than there were years of the actual, like, I think Gunsmoke ran as a program for more years than the actual West existed. I mean, it ranked number one. <laughs> now I'm just learning about Gunsmoke. It ranked number one in the ratings for f- five straight years. That's insane. It's funny. Um, I don't really have anything to m- more to say if we're keeping our kind of uh, tantric quickies. I don't have anything more to say about Blazing Tales except that I still think it's very funny. I think the cultural conversation around it is ridiculous and stupid. And um, it is – it has – it is mostly very well-intentioned. It's a comedy from 1974. So it uh, – it's – it is funny that it's like, hey, we should have respect for black people but not Chinese or gay people or Native Americans. Like it does that thing, but uh, I think yeah, overall they, they have Mel Brooks in red face uh, speaking Yiddish instead yeah. of doing fake, um, you know, Cherokee or Sioux. It would be Sioux language. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So it's. I mean, I don't know. It's. It's. Uh, it's. I mean, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it, it's, it's, it. It holds up beyond the um, the stupidity of. Like, oh, you can't say this. But again, as we kind of talked about this in producers um, as well, it's like they are missing at what is now acceptable in this movie that wasn't acceptable at the time and vice versa. Like, and that they're implying that that anyone could just go and make a Blazing Saddles because these movies were unoffensive at the time, which is the same thing that they would say about the producers, which is just like it's ahistorical. And yes, I understand they're, they don't care about accuracy, cultural context, historical context. They're just making a stupid political point, but it is so fucking annoying and stupid. Yeah, it's always a historical. But uh, honestly, I'm glad we talked about uh, – we offered a defense of Blazing Saddles that is um, rational and reasonable. It would have been very easy to go Chris Farley show on this movie and just say, do you remember when they said that? That was awesome, which I – Almost fell into. For I mean, because what are you? Gonna, what else are you going to do with this movie? It's the characters don't matter. One thing I'll say that I do like is they don't have a the love interest for Bart is Gene Wilder. Like, yeah. it's not a so many comedies uh, insert a like stupid love interest that kind of takes away from the jokes because they're like, well, we do want some caring about that. Um, and I think Mel Brooks movies do eventually kind of do that. Obviously, the Robin Hood story, that's part of it. But uh, but Spaceballs has it. And I think some of the other ones do. And I like that the main romance in this movie is between Cleveland Little and Gene Wilder. They're, they're just so sweet together. Yeah. It's it's the thing that makes me come back to this movie, I think, as an, as an adult who's heard all these jokes a hundred times. Um, and like I talked about with the producers, sometimes it's not about the joke itself. It's about the line reading. Um, it's, it's a joke I've heard a hundred times, but like you hearing it out of Gene Wilder's voice or hearing it out of Cleveland Little's voice is, is, is worth, worth the, the revisit. Um, I, uh, don't necessarily want to go through any more quotes. I do think it's very funny that there's jokes in this movie, like the hand cart quicksand joke oh, that yeah. like two white guys explaining why that's funny is actually going to sound really bad. <laughs> So they they get. I the think I think we covered it. With it the, 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 we covered it by like all of the white people are terrible and idiots, and 
I mean, yeah. that is that joke, so. Yeah. And I, I like to say, you know, if we're kind of, um, Pat, next week we're going to talk about Young Frankenstein. And before we go, I just want to ask one question of our audience, you know, uh, which is, uh, where do white women at? <laughs> Not here, just some white men. <laughs> Good night. Good night. so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the show Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>